Welcome to How I Lawyer, a podcast where I talk to attorneys from throughout the profession about what they do, why they do it, and how they do it well. I'm your host, Jonah Perlin, a law professor in Washington, D.C. This episode is sponsored, edited, and engineered by my friends at Law Pods. Law Pods is a professional podcast production company focused solely on attorney podcasting. I absolutely love working with them, and if you're considering becoming a legal podcaster or just want to learn more, check them out at lawpods.com. And now, let's get started. Welcome to the podcast, MC. I'm so grateful to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, Jonah. Look, so I want to start by sort of learning a little bit more about your personal path to law. So was this always the plan or or when did you decide you wanted to be a lawyer? Yeah, I think when I was pretty young, I decided I wanted to be a lawyer. The first thing I thought I wanted to be was a poet. I think I was maybe 10 or 11 and I thought I would be a poet. And then I had an image of myself starving in a garret somewhere. And uh, and I thought maybe not a poet. So I started thinking about what else I would do. And I was a very thoughtful child. So I would say, I haven't decided yet. People would ask me, you know, what? well, I haven't decided yet. And most people were like, kid, we're just making conversation with you. We, we're not <laughs> serious. But I was serious. And then eventually I just decided lawyer. And I really don't know how or why. There's no lawyers in my family that I know of, although I'm digging through my ancestry. My great-grandfather was a judge back in Lithuania. So there's something way back there. But prior to that, I had no knowledge. But as it turned out, it was a really good combination of writing skills and persuasion. And becoming an appellate lawyer really was just like a perfect fit for me because of my interest in writing. And, you know, that's really what we do in persuading judges. Yeah, that's interesting because my next question was going to be why appellate law? And it sounds to me like the the original draw, at least, was the sort of writing heavy focus practice. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, the, the first was just utter panic. So I, I clerked at the Ninth Circuit and I clerked for the district court. And I really enjoyed those jobs. I wor- loved working with judges and I felt like I got an understanding of, of how they operate um, in those clerkships. And then I went into litigation and uh, I had this moment of panic as a like a fourth year. I was in a trial and I didn't really like it very much. And this was supposed to be like the mm. holy grail. You know, everyone's like, oh, you're in trial and working hundreds of hours a month. And and I realized that I was a different kind of person or beast or animal or whatever you call it when the trial lawyers were thoroughly excited about really roughly cross-examining witnesses And I honestly couldn't get behind that. And I just felt terribly for the people they were cross-examining as human Mm. beings. And I was like, well, that's just terrible. Yeah, I know they're convicted felons. I know they're cooperating witnesses, whatever. But like, I just couldn't do that to another person. And it was hard for me to witness. So I thought, well, geez, this is what the trial lawyers love to do. And I really can't stomach it. So I'm in deep trouble because clearly this is not, you know, these aren't, this isn't my tribe. And I, this is the only thing I've thought about doing, so I have no idea what I might do. But I loved in the trial talking to the judge. So doing the jury instructions, arguing motions in limine. And I thought, gosh, if I could do that part of a trial, I would really like it. But most people are not going to hire you for a trial just for those things. But as it turns out, many years later, they do as an appellate lawyer. That's what you're doing in the trial court is consulting sure. on the legal matters. And you know what I love about that story also is is, first of all, you had to sort of see what you didn't like. And that was almost more important than seeing what you did like. 
it's sometimes more challenging to figure that out in the abstract than it is to figure out what you want to do. Yeah. And I think it's so important that people, when they're thinking about what is it that they want to do, focus on how do they want to spend their day? And more importantly, how do they not want to spend their day? And it sounds like you did just that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I just realized, oops, you know, and and there's a moment of panic because you're like, oh, this is my track. This is what I was planning to do. Although I do think there's a benefit of that, of having early experience. There's there's importance in having early experience so that you can get get your skills done earlier. But also so you can discover exactly what you said, Jonah, which is, you know, I really like that. Like in abstract, it sounds really good, but actually doing it, it's not as exciting as I thought it would be, or or it isn't my highest skill set, you know, my highest right. most use. And so what is it that you do sort of all day now that you practice? Is it just sort of sitting around an oak desk with books staring upon you? Or what is your life of a uh, appellate lawyer uh, look like in sort of terms of the day-to-day? Yeah, well, part of it is having deep thoughts, as you mentioned, uh, you know, and I don't know about an oak desk, but certainly, you know, having uh, deep thoughts. Sometimes they're, you know, on a walk or a hike, but... Yes. Yeah, so, well, there's many parts to it. I mean, I alluded to it. So first is obviously just the straight appeals. So mm-hmm. we come in after a result in the trial court and we review the record. So there's a lot of monastic time, you know, reviewing the record, especially when it's really a long record. And then um, preparing the appellate briefs and and arguing. So that actually takes quite a bit of time. I mean, oral argument preparation, you know, it's like five or six weeks if it's a significant case. So I know it sounds like a lot of trialers will go in and say, yeah, I'm argue- I argue like 20 things or 10 motions a week. That's very different for us. You know, I would say four to five arguments a year on average. One year I had nine appellate arguments and that was quite the pace because you're talking about, you know, every month or every other month or a couple of weeks apart when you're used to preparing for like a month at a time. So there is a lot of that academic part to it, but you're also in practice. So it's not totally academic. I mean, in my role as chair of the department, I'm, you know, managing people, their workloads, I'm bringing in work for the group and for myself. So a lot of interaction with clients who include trial lawyers as well as in-house counsel. Yeah, I. it's interesting because I think people don't believe me when I tell them that if you're an appellate lawyer, you might spend five weeks preparing for a one-hour oral argument. And I, I think that's surprising to lawyers and to non-lawyers alike. What is the challenge, or is it a challenge, I should ask, in this world where everything moves so fast and people want things done as quickly and cheaply as possible, is there still sort of a business case for the five-week prep in addition to the five-week prep to write a brief or or what have you? Yeah. I mean, I think obviously, uh, you know, SCOTUS practitioners, that that is the MO for them in terms of preparation for that level. If you're at the highest court of the land or the state, most people say, okay, you know, this is going to be, this is a major issue. So we want to really prepare well for it. The part of it is like educating people what's involved in that argument. Even though it's short, you, you have to be prepared for all kinds of questions and the implications of the case. It isn't just your case and whether it's being appropriately decided in your case, but they're announcing rules of law. And so they have to, have to the court has to think, especially at the Supreme Court level, about the implications. We announcing the right rule of law for the country or the state, as opposed to these people who are in front of us. It's really both questions. 
And we're involved in the process as appellate lawyers of, I think of it as kind of citing the case in the flow of the law. So the law is sort of flowing along as a river or whatever you want to envision it as. In your case, you know, it's kind of a rock in the middle of that river and you have to figure out, does it go with the flow? Should the flow change because of this? And, and how do you describe that and persuade the court about your case in the context of the law overall? Which to me is what is most interesting about being an appellate lawyer, because you're really dealing with the law and the facts have already been created or made for you in the record. So you're not involved with that as much. But there's still an aspect of storytelling that's important, but it's storytelling in the context of the law and the development of the law, you know, and the particular parts of your case too. If you have a really non-sympathetic client or a non-sympathetic position in a case, judges are still people too, and that impacts their view of the case. For sure. And what do you do in sort of preparation for an oral argument? I've had some other appellate practitioners on the podcast, and if I've learned anything, it's that uh, if you ask two appellate practitioners how to prepare for an oral argument, you get three opinions. I'm curious <laughs> what uh, what your approach is. Yeah, I mean, I think I have a more traditional approach. It is kind of funny what you said about it at the outset about like explaining to someone that it takes five or six weeks to prepare for argument. My Ninth Circuit clinic students at Loyola Law School in Los Angeles just had their argument in April, and. I told them, you know, two or three weeks, two or three months out, I'm like, okay, now we're going to prepare for argument. And they were like, well, what else are we going to do? You know, in that time frame, I'm like, oh, you're going to prepare for argument. Right. And they understood by the end, like, oh, we needed to do all of that. So my review starts with reading all of the briefs again and writing questions in the margins. So any question, and I am I am a ruthless reader. I'm a ruthless reader of my brief and the other side's brief. I try to be as objective as possible. I try to be like one one of the judges. Where are the weak points? Where are the questions? Where do, when I read this paragraph, what question comes to mind? And I just write those all down, and then figure out what the answers to those questions would be. So I think I think of it as like the question gathering phase, which I mm. employ with a lot of my colleagues as well. I ask them to read the briefs and just give me your questions that you have potential questions from the bench. Because each judge has a different perspective. By the time you've come to that point, you have a certain perspective. It can sometimes be hard to pull out and see how someone else might see the case, what the pivotal yeah. points are and things like that. So I just gather as many questions as possible from as many you know smart people who don't know the case as well as I do. And then I read the whole record, like the record itself, not just the notes again. And I see which things pop out at me and you know, different ways of framing questions. Then I read all of the key cases in order by topic, the earliest case to the end. And I read them all to see, is there some trend in the law that, you know, I can discuss in a different way at argument? So, you know, that's a lot of work. That's a lot of hours just doing that part. And then sure. um, two moot courts usually, one more informal, one more formal where I get more questions that I can kind of test out what my statement, uh, my plan statement, how that lands, and if I want to adjust that. Yeah, what I love about that is how is how much preparation goes into the preparation, right? It's not just how can I answer the question, but half the battle is figuring out what the universe of potential questions is. Before we move on from oral argument, I do want to ask, do you think it changes the outcome of cases? I do believe in the value of framing and reframing parts of the case, legal issues, even parts of the record 
everybody thinks like by the time you get to argument, everyone's read everything. How could we possibly see anything else? But even as the lawyer on the case, you have a little more distance from how you presented it. You can see different ways of thinking about the issues, different ways of explaining why this result is just and proper under the law. What's really happening? Sometimes I feel like what, what's really happening in the case on the record. And I have seen, I've been the subject of it a couple of times where just describing the record a little bit differently or saying, in essence, this is what happened. And here's why this needs to be the result from that. You can see a light bulb go on. Maybe somebody else wrote the briefs and you're coming in to argue and it just wasn't that clear. It's something that they just took for granted. They knew they litigated the case all the way through and they didn't make it explicit. But for someone coming from the outside, hey, you know, that is important. It changes how I look at the case or Mm -hmm. there's something in the record that belies the other side's point or something like that. So I've seen like the light bulb go on and I do think it's impacted the, the outcome and certainly the reasoning. Sure. And, you know, we've talked a lot about oral argument, but that comes second, right? It comes after you've already written the briefs and often either read the responded briefs or responded to the uh, other side's brief. Talk to me a little bit about your writing process. You know, as a writing professor, I'm always interested in sort of how people think about that process of writing something that's quite large, that has a lot of material behind it, but trying to make it something that is that is purpose and audience driven. So talk to me a little bit about your writing process for briefing. Yeah, so you're right. It's important to emphasize all the fun fireworks and drama is, you know, oral argument. And I always feel like oral argument, my prime directive is do no harm. Don't concede something. Don't do something that could be problematic. But really, I mean, in some jurisdictions, like in California, the court has read the briefs and has a circulating draft opinion before you get to argument. That's Hmm. not true in the federal courts. It's not true in the Ninth Circuit. They have not conferenced. They conference right after argument. But that just reinforces the emphasis on the briefing. You really have to be a very good writer and persuader and storyteller to be an appellate lawyer. You know, that has to be like your number one skill, which you develop over and over, over time and continue to develop even to today. But yeah, the process is, um, I still think about it as, placing this case in the development of the law. So I'm Hmm. still interested in reading the journey of the law, the cases, you know, what's going on. If there's a developing area, why should it be, why should it develop in a certain direction? I'm thinking that from the beginning of of doing the appellate brief. But Hmm. there's also a lot of things about the case itself, like reading the record, what, what jumps out at you? What part of the story jumps out at you? What seems important what does your gut tell you about the outcome or something that's just pivotal to you and maybe to the outcome, to the legal outcome? I'm, I'm always reading for that to begin with. And how do you tell the story of the people and and the case as well? You also have a unique perspective because you're both a seasoned practitioner and someone, as you mentioned, who teaches uh, in a clinic. And I, I just wonder if there are things that you wish sort of students had uh, earlier on, or that we should do a better job teaching law students, either things you notice when they come into your classroom or things you make sure to leave, make sure they leave with when they leave your classroom? Yeah. I mean, I definitely think of that as people come into the appellate clinic, they they may not end up being appellate lawyers, but I want them to be better better lawyers by the time they leave. And, and their transferable skills, if you're a clear thinker and clear writer, 
that is valuable in any job you have, and especially in the law. So a few people find their love and passion and decide they want to become appellate lawyers. Many don't, but find value in the experience still because it improves their writing. My experience has been there's been a lot of variety in the level at which people come in in terms of writing. I, I mm-hmm. don't know, you know, what their previous experience was, but some some people at a much higher level, they're able to really refine their writing. Other people are really learning more fundamentals about, about putting briefs together. And that can be a challenge sometimes when you have a team that is at two different levels, trying to integrate that and get a brief written in two months, you know, in, mm-hmm. in a real case. So it's definitely it's definitely a challenge, but a fun challenge because I love seeing the change in the students' writing. Yeah, and do you think you know? Talk a little bit about the power of clinics. I think it's one of the things that I didn't do when I was in law school, and one of the things that I encourage my students to do, and I encourage all law students to do. How do you think clinics can play into someone's sort of legal education and professional formation? Oh yeah, I mean, when I was in law school, we had very few clinics. I think it was the beginning of the clinics. And they were really just not as complex as the Ninth Circuit clinics and, and clinics that we now have. But there are so many opportunities to, to engage in clinics. And some law schools require that you be take one clinic before you depart law school. I think it's really valuable in terms of dealing in real-life cases with real-life clients and understanding how all of the things you're learning academically apply in the real world. And what it means to be an advocate and to represent someone. And then also specifically gives you great experience. I think that they really fill a significant gap that's happening over time in terms of law firms used to be the training ground in the beginning for law students. Mm -hmm. And then clients became unhappy with wanting to pay for the training of the lawyers. And so that is, you know, sort of downsized in, in that training aspect. So you have to get it somewhere else to begin with. Not to say that law firms don't train lawyers, but the the opportunities aren't as robust. It's better for you if you come in with some kind of experience you can use to catapult forward. And the clinics provide that. And more specifically with clinics like the Ninth Circuit clinics, you graduate law school saying, I argued a case before the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which most lawyers, even after 10 years of practice, can't say they did. That's so absolutely right. To me, that really helps as a supervisor. If I want to give someone an argument opportunity and the client says, is this their first argument? Because understandably, most clients don't want to be someone's first argument, even though someone has to be. Sure. And you can say, why no? No, it isn't. <laughs> they right. have an no, argument, that makes right? sense. They have an argument already in law school. Wow. No, that makes a ton of sense. And one of the other things you just mentioned is the idea of clients. And I've always you know, been a little bit interested in sort of the business side of being an appellate lawyer, because I imagine it's a little bit different than the business side of a transactional lawyer who sort of has repeat clients, or even a, a someone who needs a litigation lawyer, where the litigation could last for years and could turn into other other litigation. Sort of, how do you think about your, the business side of, of being an appellate lawyer? I mean, I was raised in the appellate law by a very entrepreneurial lawyer, um, Ellis Horvitz, who founded Horvitz and Levy out here in California. And he really is like the original appellate lawyer entrepreneur. And, you know, what he taught me, which continues to be the case, it's a little bit different now, but certainly when he, when he started the practice and it wasn't even a specialty then, 
you know, his clients were trial lawyers, really working in collaboration and teams with the trial lawyers. So I've always thought that way that we have either really two routes through which work comes to us from the trial lawyers who recognize when they need us and they tell the client or the client themselves at this more sophisticated level or even at the individual level realize, oh, it's going to appeal or something like that. And now we need a specialist in this area. So you have both avenues, which doesn't you know, usually happen for, you know, trial lawyers are not sure generally getting their work from other lawyers unless a deal went wrong or, you know, something, some other referral right. isn't as consistent as ours. And I don't know that people think about that's the larger team. The other thing that's changed, I think, though, in the last 10 or 15 years is that appellate law, obviously, as you mentioned, can be episodic, right? Not Not everyone wants to have litigation and even less want to have an appeal. So they try to avoid it, and not many people are regular appellants or appellees. Sure. So you're you're always, in many cases, having one-off situations with clients. So you have to keep keep having more of those. And then the second thing is that both the trial lawyer and the in-house counsel have a say or want to have a say in who's being hired. Used to be just the trial lawyer and the in-house counsel would kind of go along with that. The trial lawyer knows who they want. Now, really, you have to get buy-in and be the number one choice for both, hmm. both the trial lawyer and the in-house counsel. So that's a whole lot more people to know and a whole lot more work to do, I think, than you know, than a litigator would have to do. Hmm. That's interesting. I had never really thought about it, but your clients are a little bit different and as we try to teach from day one, knowing who your clients are is sort of the the bread and butter of being an effective lawyer. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's both. Yeah. And I guess the other question I have is, you know, you do so many different things. Like looking at your bio, I could have I could have gone five minutes on your bio. You're active in in legal organizations, in non-legal organizations. You have the podcast, which we're gonna talk about. You're active on social media. You know, one of the questions I try to ask people who I think sort of can do it all is is how they do it all, not just sort of high level, but sort of brass tacks. How do you how do you choose what to do and and how do you make time for for everything? Yeah, I guess I am kind of out there. Um, I, which obviously is important for for client development and business development as well, that you stay top of mind. Mm-hmm. But that's not why I do all the different things that I do. You know, I mean, I believe strongly in service, so. When I was quite young, when I was in my 20s, I joined my first nonprofit board, an arts board. I I joined the opera board. Now, first of all, most people are not joining boards in their 20s. And second of all, you know, most people aren't saying, hey, my first board is going to be an opera board. But, you know, to each their own. And I actually have a good story about that and that I decided I had been an extra in an opera between the bar exam and and going into into, um, my clerkship. Because I thought it would be fun. It would be a different life and, you know, being in theater life for a couple months. And so I and I had an affinity for the opera. So I just decided, well, you know, if I'm going to think about being on a board, I'll join the opera board. So I called their director or something like that. I basically called a meeting to have a lunch to offer myself to be on their board. Now that I've been on many boards, I realize that is about the craziest faux pas or the craziest thing anyone could ever do. <laughs> But it's good not to know that when you're doing it. So I was really earnest. And they were very excited, as it turned out, because, you know, there aren't many, like, 
I don't know, 28 year olds clamoring to be on the opera board. So they were very excited to have, you know, an expansion in their demographic on the board. So I put that in the category of, you know, it's sometimes it's good if you don't know and you just go and ask. And other times, and also you just don't know what they might be needing or thinking like this is actually a positive thing because they want to, you know, expand their board. But that's kind of how I was raised. So, you know, the minute you have kind of have anything to give, whether it's your lawyer skills or, you know, some money to donate, you kind of do it and find your way. So I've always been involved in women's organizations because their advancement is important to me and also arts organizations. So I've I've always served on nonprofit boards, one, one or two in that those areas each year. And then I kind of reevaluate and decide, okay, well, what's my next, you know, next year? And then uh, bar service, I've just really enjoyed that being part of the bar community because you mm-hmm. get to meet people from so many different practice areas. The Women Lawyers Association of Los Angeles was my first foray into that, serving on the board there for almost a decade. And I never would have met all these women on the board or who attended, people who did criminal defense, people who were, you know, worked for the government, people who had many different practice areas than mine. I just never would have met them or seen like the richness of of law practice in Los Angeles if I hadn't been in that organization. So I'm a big proponent of bar associations. And obviously, it's also a good fit and dovetails with my client base, right? The trial lawyers are also there. So, so yeah, so I'm involved in that and obviously at the national level as well. I'm a writer, so I just, I like to write a lot. So there's a lot of, you know, various essays and writings out there. Some, some law review articles, others, thought leadership in that area. You know, and then as you mentioned, the, you know, now the, the podcast, which is really kind of exploding. Yeah. So let's talk about the podcast. So tell me about sort of how it came about and um, what you're looking to do with it. It's the Porsche podcast, the Porsche project for anybody uh, who's listening. And I'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about how they can find it at the end. But tell me about how that came about and, and what your goals are with the podcast. Yeah. So the Porsche project podcast, really, it didn't start out as a podcast. It started out a couple of years ago when I noticed that um, being an appellate lawyer, that there were not that many appellate judges who were women. Certainly there are more trial judges, but not as many. And when I did a survey, I'm like, well, there's about 150 at that time. And it hasn't changed much since then. Women appellate judges at the state and federal level across the nation, that seems like a good cohort that I could do interviews with and and do a book of their stories, of their their personal stories to the bench and and the like. So I started with that. And then through that process, I recognized the judges like to tell their stories. They like to get on the phone with me and talk to me. And when you're doing a book, that's not very efficient because then you mm. have to go back and write things in their voice and go back and forth. So I thought at this pace, practicing law and doing this on the side as a sort of passion project, you know, really, it was never going to get done. So I kind of set it aside. And then the pandemic hit. And, uh, and I saw an increase in podcasts, lawyer podcasts, yours included, um, talking about people's paths in the profession. And I wondered whether the judges would be willing to engage, you know, in a public way with those kinds of conversations with me and whether this would be just better suited to a podcast format. So 
I reached out mm, last fall, so end of 2021, and just to 15 judges I knew saying, okay, if I did this, you know, would you like to do it? Because if no one's willing to talk to me, we, we have no podcast. That's so for sure. They, yeah. So let's start with that before we get too too fancy. And and they were all really excited about it. And they thought it was just such a great idea. So I recorded those first interviews in December. And then from those, I really thought I'll just have like a one season. We'll get through one season, maybe 20 episodes, and we'll see how it goes. And, you know, maybe rev it up again in the fall. But what happened was that it, it had a life of its own. So the judges would talk to other judges after we had our interview. They would reach out and say, oh, you have to talk to judge so-and-so. She has a great story. Or hmm. another judge, you know, in another jurisdiction. So I couldn't say no to them. And I also thought my job, you know, I may have started this, but I'm really just here to facilitate something that's larger than me. Something else is happening here that's beneficial, both both to people who are being interviewed, but obviously, I think, to others as well. So I just decided I'm just going to go with it, and I'm just going to follow everyone who wants to do this. I'll just, you know, follow the road. And then I expanded beyond judges because I started thinking, thinking about your podcast as well. If I'm a woman in college or in law school, maybe I want to see women succeeding and having leadership roles in, in other places as well. And to kind of showcase all the different roles that women have now, from women managing partners to women have used their law degree to become executives of museums or other nonprofits or to start legal tech companies, deans of law schools, law professors, you know, just a whole array of, of, different, of a different accomplished ways of being as a, as a woman lawyer. Hmm. And are there any sort of threads across the episodes that you've been hearing? I mean, one of the things that I've noticed doing my own podcast is, you know, I don't really expect anybody but me to have listened to every episode. And so I think I, in some ways as the host, you are the only one who really gets a deep sense of the incredible sort of cumulative knowledge as opposed to the knowledge you get from each episode and each story. And so I'm just curious if there are any threads or commonalities that you've seen across your your different guests, even though they're all sort of of a of a specific type. Yeah, you know that's a really good point, Jonah. Because I think that's I think there's the individual stories, and there's like the meta story that arises yes. from all of the different interviews. And some of them are, in my case, is is really a, a mini history of women's progress in the profession, but also commonalities which. I hope for people who listen to more than one episode, we'll, we'll give them a little bit of confidence. So the women's progress part is really interesting. There are women who started and graduated law school in the late 1970s or early 1980s who still have stories like Justices Ginsburg and O'Connor where only men from law review need apply, things like that, that it's almost, it's almost unbelievable to think that that was true, but, but it was. And you see, you go, oh, well, you know, I might be feeling kind of badly. There might be some obstacles in, in my life, but I don't have that. <laughs> so right. it, it gives you a sense of like, we've, we, have, we have accomplished something. We have moved forward from that. But there's value in, in hearing those stories and how recent, really recent, relatively, they were. 
And then to see that people who had those stories, who came out of, you know, saying just don't apply, they still became the chief justices of their state Supreme Court or, or other really impactful roles. So that even if you have those kinds of obstacles, it doesn't mean you can't accomplish something. So I think there's something inspiring from that. And then also the kinds of jobs that women had or were able to get. So there were certain jobs you just couldn't apply for or people weren't interested in in having you be there at a certain point. So maybe there were, particularly those who went to the bench, disproportionately in government. That's where you get your skill building opportunities. You can't be hired in a major law firm, but attorney general's office or the DA's office, you have a lot of experience from that. Hmm. So you can see that. And then you can see as it goes along, now there are women managing partners, women who started at their law firm who became the managing partner. Well, if they had entered 10 years previous, they, they wouldn't have been hired at that law firm to begin with. So that whole story is really interesting, just the milestones. And then the point of every one of them acknowledges either explicitly or implicitly some kind of challenge that they've had some of them pretty extraordinary, you know, personal challenges or professional challenges along the way and how they maneuver those and navigate those. I think that sometimes when you see people, you see like the end story, Mm. but you don't see like how they got there. And it wasn't pretty, you know, in a lot of cases. And so I think that also gives you some hope because you're like, well, it's not pretty on my end either, but it doesn't mean it can (laughs) end up, you know, in, in a good way. The story can end well. I think about that David Goggins, who's well known for his like super hardcore mindset, was a Navy SEAL and ultra runner and all of this stuff. And he's like, everybody sees me now, but they don't, they didn't see the beginning of like what it took to become who I am now. And I hope that the podcast shares that a little bit and their personal journeys and they're incredibly genuine and authentic and forthcoming in a way that I'm you know, very happy that they are, but I there had no way to anticipate that they would be. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. And it's such a good podcast for that reason, because it picks sort of something that's general enough, right? Women in the law, mm-hmm. but something that's also specific in providing kind of like you said, with the history of the law, which is what you love in any case, this is yeah. kind of the history of women in the law. And, but it's so much more than just an oral history project, right? It has a practical component, which I think is so incredible. Who are you thinking about when you're asking your questions? Like, who's your ideal audience for this? Yeah. I mean, well, it's interesting, like, who the ideal audience is and then who the audience is is different. Right. Right. right? 100%. Yes. Right. Yeah. It's so fascinating. So, yeah, originally I thought, With the judges, I wanted women lawyers who basically, many of the judges said, hey, I didn't think about putting my name in the hat to become a judge. Somebody recommended I do that, whether it was a sitting judge, whether it was some other mentor of mine. And so I thought, well, what if you don't have someone who does that, but you can hear someone's story and it resonates with you? That person would be the person that kind of encourages you to do that, to put your name in the hat. And so that's what I was hoping the podcast would be initially. For, for women lawyers. And then as it branched out, I thought I thought exactly of women law students, women in college saying, look at all these different things that you can do in the law. If sometimes you don't know what it is you want to do or you think the law isn't for you because you think the law is only this. But it's so many other things and you can use those skills for 
a lot of other settings. And um, so I think about that too, of, of younger women, maybe even women who aren't in law school. And then beyond that, even, even further down, I was hoping that, you know, high school students might be interested in the stories too. And actually that's coming to fruition. So one of the, um, the program, the director of programs for Girls Inc. in Orange County, I interviewed her and her interview will be coming up on the podcast, but she's a lawyer. And she said, hey, do you want to collaborate? So we will be doing a Porsche Project Live program for them in connection with their externship programming over and workforce development program over the summer, having some of the local podcast guests on a panel and talking about our careers, about 150 11th grade students in Orange County. Wow. I think that's fantastic. And, you know, the other amazing part about all of this is that it's taking on a life of its own, like any other project. But at least in my experience, like I also had that experience where what was my initial idea evolved over time and the audience that I thought I was speaking to, there were others out there. I mean, the internet is a crazy place and podcasts allow for this asynchronous communication to people you don't even know. They choose you, you don't choose them. Mm -hmm. And I just think the fact that you're taking it and running with it, that's the important part because it would have been easy to just sort of say, okay, well, this was my plan. I'm going to do my 15 episodes and call it a day, but you're letting it develop. And I think that's so incredible. Yeah. I learned that. I learned that skill. It really is a skill of kind of letting it go, letting something become whatever it's going to become when I published books a couple of years ago, I I decided to, you know, start a publishing company and publish some books in an area I'd never, I had no idea what I was doing, but I just had a sense that it would be positive and it would be a positive reinforcement for, again, women, women and girls in the world. And so I just did it. I figured out how to do it. And then I just let it be whatever it was going to be. You know, if it helps a, a few individual people, if it helps some families, if it brings people together, great. And so like releasing something to be whatever it's going to be, that's what I learned from the books. And then I just applied it to the podcast. And I think when it happens once, you recognize when it's happening. You know, you see it. And right. Jenna, you said you've seen it, right? You just you just Absolutely. realize like, I don't know what this is, but it, it wants to be. It wants to be something and it's going to contribute something. So I'm just going to let it roll and just kind of shepherd it. Yeah, I, I, I just love the idea that we live in an age where if you want to be a creator, you can be you can be a creator. And learning from those experiences also is so powerful. Well, look, MC, we're getting towards the end of our time. And so what I always end with these discussions is, is a, for a piece of advice. What is something you know now that you wish you knew sort of when you were just starting law school or just graduating uh, or sort of alternatively, what's a piece of advice you would give to someone who's just entering our profession? Hmm. Yeah, I think, well, two things came to mind, I think in light of our earlier discussion too, is courage, you know, have Hmm. courage. It's easy to be a little bit cowed and a little bit scared because law school is basically completely taking you down to rebuild you again. And you're thinking in your mind and you're writing and all of that stuff. So it could be a little intimidating, but to have courage through, through law school and then into the profession. And then I think the follow-up point to to what we were talking about before, which is if you have a really great idea and you, you think that it, you know, should go out in the world, then just do it. Sort of like the Nike, uh, you know, just do it. You don't know where it's going to go or what's going to be involved, but press ahead. 
I love that. I love that. Don't wait for permission. Try something and learn from it, whether it works or not, you'll still learn. So look, MC, this has been fantastic and best of luck. Where can people find you and uh, the Porsche Project podcast? Because I want to make sure they can go listen because it's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the podcast has a website, the Porsche Project Podcast.com, where we have both video and audio of the and transcripts of each of the episodes. But the podcast itself is available on all major platforms, Spotify, Google, Apple, all of those. And there are links to those on the website as well. And then in addition to the website, I'm also obviously my law firm website, buckhalter.com. And then I'm also on LinkedIn. Fantastic. Well, look, MC, thank you so much for being here. And I hope uh, we can find other ways to collaborate together in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for your podcast as well, Jonah. It's really helpful. And I think it's just such a great resource for students and, and new lawyers, but also lawyers who are in practice for a while who might be curious about other, what does it look like to do that kind of practice? So it's really yes. Fun. It's been amazing to hear the hear the practitioners who who tell me how interesting it is and how they always wanted to know what fill in the blank kind of lawyer did and and I try to try to open that up. So I I'm greatly appreciative of your work and uh, we'll keep pushing the law podcast space. Exactly. All right. Thank you so much, Jonah. Thanks so much. Again, I'm Jonah Perlin and this is the How I Lawyer podcast. Thanks to podcast sponsor Law Pods for their expert editing. If you're a lawyer considering starting your own podcast, definitely check them out at lawpods.com. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, I hope you'll consider sharing it with friends and colleagues or on social media. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please sign up for the email list at howilawyer.com or subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, if you have comments, suggestions, or ideas for the show, please reach out to me at howilawyer at gmail.com or at Jonah Perlin on Twitter. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.